0: by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul
1: all right i've entitled this uh, you know how not to shrink back but i'm going to start with a very simple proposition and that is that we learn virtue by practicing virtue and that seems to be thematic in Hebrews, but especially in this chapter. That is that virtue becomes part of our character, not from an inside-out process, but from an outside-in process. So in the case of being peaceable, I'm working at it. Okay? So, if any of you see me in a non-peaceable action you know that it's a process
0: until then
1: forewarned (laughs) Paul says I do not consider myself I'm paraphrasing to have grasped virtue but I strive toward it it was Pascal who said I was trying to remember this if you do not believe and I may be making this up but I think he said something like this if you do not believe in prayer kneel and pray that is the action, in some way results, uh, the practice then gives rise to the virtue, the practice gives rise to the belief. This fits very much with Rene Girard's whole theory of, uh, that we learn through mimetic desire or mimesis, we learn through imitation. And he means that even at the most basic level that we learn desire through mimesis. And so the practical or practice salvation, I think, is what we're being encouraged toward in Hebrews. And what we mean then by practice, it's an embodied salvation. And when we say embodied, we don't mean once you've said embodied, it doesn't. It's not exclusively individualistic, but it is corporate. And so it's a a salvation. And that's my. This is actually my second point, but I think it's the writer's second point. It is a salvation that completes the law in the temple. This is actually not a second point. If you get right here, that Israel and the all that it contained is a corporate body that is learning uh, through the law how to be in association with God or how to be lovers of God. Uh, but what I'm claiming with this, this is not just the case with Christianity. I think that we have a misconstrual of what it means to be human, partly arising from a, a bad Christianity. But I think that the basic reality of what you know of what it means to be human is going to function in this corporate way. So our virtue, our character, our faith, our religion is not a given, it is not imputed tor- tor- uh, you know, for us, or it's not imparted directly you know, from heaven, which is sometimes the way it's pictured, but it passes through the practice of community. That is, corporate practices are going to be what enable us to be Christian. Um, virtue, Stephen Long says, is performative insofar as it is acquired through acting virtuously. Uh, it's theatrical. Persons are moved by observing. Now, this was actually some of the early Christian drama was uh, to put on display virtue and then to emulate that virtue. So the movement exists from external emulation to an internal transformation. John Wesley got this when he he says, Preach faith until you have it. Then because you have it, you will preach faith. And so we often put on the virtues when they're not yet ours. That is, we attempt to, to be virtuous and in the attempt... We become our character is transformed. Now, this is over and against Luther's whole idea, and Luther's specifically, Luther's reading of chapter 10 here. Uh, For Luther, there is no route from external practices to fundamental inner transformation. And so, for him, grace opposes our natural power so thoroughly uh, that our only hope for growth in righteousness you know, is the idea of God giving it. Faith is, you know, both with Luther and Calvin, uh, faith is a passive uh, reception. And it leaves out little room for human agency. No surprise then that he not only says James is an epistle of straw, but he questions the canonicity of the book of Hebrews. Uh, And particularly because of the passage where the we're reading tonight because it seems to say we got to do stuff uh, so if you go back to 10 thir- or to 1036 this section Christ is made perfect through obedience and he has become our model and the word will is used throughout this section he's become a model uh, in accomplishing the will of God you have When you have done the will of God, he says in 10.36, you may receive what was promised. In 10.26, uh, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Luther's commentary on this section actually leaves the good deeds out. Um, the, let it He says, let us consider how to provoke each other in charity. So, um, and I think that's an indication that this is very much over and against not just a Lutheran understanding, but all the, you know, Calvin and, and actually a good portion of Protestantism.
0: What would you say is the difference from charity?
1: Well, in the passage it mentions both love and good deeds. So love, uh, you know, charity, I I suppose that we could run them together and say that love is the good deeds. But the writer here, I think what Luther, the reason he wanted to leave out good deeds uh, is that uh, he connected it with something that we do through human agency. I don't think there is a huge difference, but he he found a difference there. In other words, that Jesus sums up the great commands, love the love of neighbor, uh, is then a summation of the law. But that was that's not the way Protestants or Lutherans are going to read the Old Testament. So what we're doing is uh, you know what we've been doing with Hebrews, and what you necessarily have to do is change up, I think, if you're going to read this book and say, oh, this is part of the New Testament canon and it's not an odd book at all, in fact, it fits into the canon, I think we have to go through and redefine, and that's partly what I'm doing tonight, to say that Christianity, and I would just say religion, is a set of powerful practices that embody life-forming convictions on the part of its practitioners. I think you can call, that's just what religion is. That's what uh, any doctrine discloses its meaning through the practices and convictions of the community that embraces it. And so this, under, this changes up how we understand Christianity. I, understand, I think it's a different way of understanding even the world's religions. And so, this is James McClendon, some of you remember this. What Christians call salvation is not simply another word for what Hindus call deliverance, moksha, or simply another word for what Buddhists call release or nirvana. This is so because the contents of a religion arise from a particular or peculiar context. And so what McClendon is doing is saying, well, Christian salvation means something very different than Buddhist or Hindu or other you know, notions of salvation. And so in Christian terms, it's not just any experience this is McClendon, of religious attainment, but is having a share in the liberation and healing associated with the rule of God Jesus proclaimed. So salvation is specifically the success that comes with faith. In faith, you know, one shares the practices and convictions of that rule. Now there's, you know, even McClendon says to outsiders, this may not seem like success at all. That is, we're following a Savior who was crucified on a cross. Odd, definitive notion of, you know, this success there. So he, he says, talk of Christian salvation without Christian practices and Christian convictions is like talk of a fire that consumes no oxygen and releases no heat like talk of a society that has no members and remembers no history. All of this, you're already familiar, if we tie in what Hebrews is doing, is saying the law is fulfilled in and through Christ, that here is new Israel, here is the new temple. In fact, if that is our understanding of Christianity, we almost, I mean, we've already then embraced this understanding that salvation is this corporate set of practices put into place in and through a socio-cultural, religious, political understanding. It is a real-world, lived-out salvation. That's what's being described in chapters 10. So Acts 17.11, you know, to be the glad recipient of salvation is to become a member of a community of persons living out their lives under the reign of Christ. Uh, so the, the meaning of the word salvation is, has to do with the shared life and the practices that we take up. So this is Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day, then the approaching period of the return of Christ, or of, of judgment, as he's going to describe it. In both six four and ten thirty six, uh, he returns to the theme of, of sin in the uh, uh, and after receiving the truth. That is, what happens if you're a Christian and you sin? Earlier he had said that no repentance was available to those who sinned after tasting God's goodness. And of course I think what we mean here is a willful, you know, continued sinfulness. And here he says something similar. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins to those who after they receive the knowledge of the truth. This is why Luther didn't like Hebrews uh, and, and why he questioned it. It seemed to give shelter to Montanism, that you know the idea that denied repentance after baptism. I think that's a misreading of this passage, but it posed problems for, especially a tradition uh, that, or an inheritance like you have in in Luther. You all, we've talked about the new perspective on Paul, and the, I think in doing Hebrews, we've really already done the new perspective. That is that the function of the law and the relationship between grace and works. It's not really uh, that we're working under a new paradigm in the New Testament. It's the same paradigm. It's just that the law is fulfilled. The purpose of the law is fulfilled. The covenant between God and Israel was established. <clears throat> this is N.T. right? in order to deal with the problem of the world as a whole. Or as one rabbi put it, God decided to make Adam first, knowing that if he went to the bad, God would send Abraham to sort things out. The covenant, in other words, was established so that the creator God could rescue the creation from evil, corruption, and disintegration, and in particular could rescue humans from sin and death. What he's just, he, N.T. Wright, as you know, is one of the key advocates of the new perspective. What he's describing is, well, the faith of Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. There's no change in, uh, you know, that. It's not law against grace and faith against works, as we often have it in Protestantism. Uh, you know, that the Gentiles are included on the basis of faith in Christ. And this is not contrary to this faithfulness to the covenant, but it's a fulfillment of the covenant. Uh, and so the intent of Judaism, the intent of the law, the intent of the temple, uh, it, all of that then is fulfilled in Christ. And this is, this is coming out very strong in recent scholarship, which recent, maybe that's, it's just being discovered by many people. Actually, Jews, Milgram, who was a Jewish scholar, was doing this back in the 1970s, and many Christians are coming to appreciate, oh, Jesus is the the true temple, and what Milgram, the way in which he, I've used him and described the way that he's looking at the temple, makes sense of that. Uh, so, I'm actually... You know, we call this the new perspective, but of course, this is not new at all. If you go back to somebody like Thomas Aquinas, uh, he's going to talk about the law in three aspects: the ceremonial, you know, the temple and the sacrifices. That's what the writer of Hebrews has already done. He said that Jesus is true temple, true sacrifice. Uh, we could talk about the judicial aspect. Your question, Maisie, you know, what is how do we treat each other, and that's a large portion of the law. Or we could talk about what Aquinas calls the moral aspect. What he meant by that was the relationship between us and God. And of course in this chapter that Christ is a, the obedient one. Uh, who He's the true, the one who is the true sacrifice. And if we think in terms of a life dedicated to God, he fulfills then these three aspects. So he's the true temple, the true sacrifice, And the corporate body of worship in which we worship is the body of Christ. The the writer says, you are that temple. Uh, And so this is not a displacement or contradiction of the law. This is the fulfillment of the law. It's not supersessionism. It's not a displacement of Israel. But the temple and the law and Israel are made universal. Universal. And that was always there in, you know, the Jews understood that themselves when it talks about Abraham's descendants being numbered like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. So the dispute in Hebrews is over more or less perfect actualizations within the same theological paradigm. It is not law over and against grace or faith over and against works. And so the main question I'm quoting Richard Berry here is whether Levitical offerings have the ability to make us perfect since the law has only, you know, this is ten one only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form. The point is in chapter 10 is not a displacement of the law but the idea that we're now made perfect. Uh, that the authors acknowledge that oh, there is a degree of efficacy in the blood of bulls and goats, but in Christ there is, we now have perfection, we've talked about perfection, that we have access to the Holy of Holies. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. We have a great high priest. This is 19 to 22. Uh, let us approach with a true heart. The idea is a real world transformation uh, a real world righteousness, not an imputed righteousness. So, this is not a setting aside of the law, but an accomplishment of the purposes of the law, a living out of the law, we could even say. So, this is the promise given to Abraham. This is the covenant expectations. I think we could say Abraham, the promised Abraham was memorialized in the law and fulfilled in Christ. And so, after telling us that you know, in, uh, that Christ's flesh opens a new and living way, uh, he, he repeats, in, just as he said in 3.6, he's going to say it in chapter 10, we are his house, we are his body. So what he's saying about Christ, Christ's obedience, Christ's you know, uh, uh, sacrifice of life dedicated to God, this is what it means to have faith, You know, what is faith? Well, faith is resurrection faith. Hope, hope is hope of the resurrection. Uh, So, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. What is the confession? What is the and confidence of hope? That we have this new and living way into the Holy of Holies or the house of God because Christ is our high priest who makes us into this house. So, it's the mystical body in its entirety. This is the complete and final temple. The dwelling of God is the Christian community. The body of Christ is the Christian community, whose members are still you know, on an earthly pilgrimage that not all of his enemies have put it, been put at his feet. This is the true temple in which uh, the temple of stone was only a figure. Uh, So, a body you have prepared for me finds its significance, I think, in this section. I have come to do your will, O God, and by extension, then, we too are now defined by our willingness to carry out God's will. Uh, The author explains... It is by God's will that we have been sacrificed or, or rather sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus make us holy? I don't think it's a uh, you know, completely uh, otherworldly thing. No, we're actually uh, made holy in the way that we live this out. Again, this is not salvation by works. That's not what we're describing but what we're describing is a real-world salvation that inclu- is inclusive of what we do. Paul, as you, I don't need to say this, you already know that what Paul meant by works is not what James meant. Paul was saying you're not saved by works of the law uh, by uh, uh, adhering to the particular, uh, you know, the food laws or the uh, uh, Sabbath laws or circumcision In conclusion, we can hold fast or we can shrink away. We can be bold or we can be confident. Uh, We can be timid. But either way, we find ourselves falling into the hands of the living God. We can have faith, you know, holding fast to hope and inciting one another to charity and being illumined by God pictured as a, a burning light. Or we can retreat. We can be fearful, lacking in faith, hope, or charity, and be consumed by a fury of fire. And so, what Priscilla maybe says, or Aquila, uh, is I have. She says I have confidence because of the works that she, you know, I've witnessed in you. That there, you're not going to fall. You're not going to fall into the hands of the living God simply to be judged, but. To be a light, and in this section we'll talk. You know what? Where is this? It's probably not Jerusalem. At least this part. It seems like it may be Rome, because in Jerusalem they had early martyrs, and the writer says, "Though you've not suffered, uh, though you've not shed blood." Um. So, and here is the key word. Paul is going to use this phrase, and the writer of Hebrews uses it. It's a quotation from Habakkuk. Uh, My righteous one will live by faith. This is not Luther's conception of faith. This is a lived out faith that has produced willingness. They've risked their necks for each other. They've put their lives on the line. And so it's the furthest thing you could get. You know, when we say prosperity gospel, I don't think it's just Joel Olstein or the guys preaching health and wealth. I think there is a sense that... uh, there is a kind of resistance to a real world suffering. The writer of Hebrews saying, oh, you suffered because you're Christians and you're going to continue to suffer. Um, That they are not promised that Jesus is going to make everything all right. Uh, They're promised sanctification, perfection, rest, but this comes from a frightening counter. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So there's this fury of fire uh, I thought this was a beautiful thought from Richard Berry. Richard Berry's talking about this notion of atonement. The issue since the exile of Adam and Eve, since the death of Nadab and Abihu, is learning how to be a people before the Lord. That is, having the openness of heart and the greatness of spirit to be genuinely in love. Such profound intimacy does cause the heart to shudder because it requires absolute vulnerability, which is the ultimate risk, but it is also the only true freedom. Israel is invited. She is given a place, a time, and even a means by which she might approach the life of the beloved son, the firstborn who dies and, behold, lives even still. No, that was a nice thought. All right, let's, let's uh, any comment, question before we read through it here?
0: To, to give a synopsis or uh, just see if we understand it, it's essentially there is a certain type of teaching which says that faith is essentially something that you do within your head Um, and that that is what Scripture has been leading to inside of Christ. But what the opposing view is that is probably right, or that you're advocating, is faith is something that we exercise with our bodies, that this is something that God and Christ has been bringing about. And... That salvation is inclusive of works and that we're being saved from evil practices and, and things into the hands of God. And so based on, on that knowledge and what we choose to do with that, um, it affects our, our hope, our, our future, um, as we relate to God being within his hands. So, like, it can be a furious thing if we we deny it, or it can be a loving and graceful and life-giving thing if it's accepted and exercised.
1: That's a good synopsis. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's read again, uh, Evan. Since you've done everything tonight, can you read verse thirty-two for us? Sure. Okay, good.
0: Um, but remember the
1: former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Uh, and uh, you've all probably took the class of Hebrews, and uh, so they've experienced persecution. Some people think, oh, this fits Rome, where uh, the Jews and the Christians with them, the Jewish Christians, were forced expelled out of Rome, or and uh, they. Their houses may have been looted. I don't know that it has to be Rome, but it does fit that situation. Some would say, well, it doesn't fit Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, James is immediately martyred and people are killed. So, uh, so let's go. Uh, Sharon, can you read? Yeah.
0: Uh, Verse 33. Yeah. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated.
1: Uh, that they, I think it's you know that they were put in prison, and if you were put in jail, they didn't feed you to jail. Your family had to come, or your friends, or your fellow believers, and so, and then they would be exposed to the same sort of persecution. Some people think that's the idea here, is that uh, some were persecuted and these people were faithful in standing beside them. If any of you ever experience a bit of uh, ostracism, uh, you quickly determine who the cowards are and who your friends are. It sorts out real quick. But these people proved not to be cowards. And he's commending them for that. Uh, Faith, can you do the next one? We're at 34, right? Yeah.
0: You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions.
1: Apparently, you know, it's like it happens still today. If people are not in their house, it gets looted. And they were looting the Christian, the Jewish Christian's houses may be in Rome, we don't know could have been on some other place but uh, it's it's not an uncommon occurrence uh, and this is why we find Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth because they've been expelled from Rome uh, am I right on that? Uh-huh. our Priscilla expert no <laughs> junior. junior expert no <laughs> Uh, Dave, you want to read verse, uh, I can't see it. 35. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Uh, there, you know, it may be that we don't know quite what the situation is now, but they've proven themselves in times of persecution. I just read an article on China uh, that it was in First Things. There are now 60 million Christians in China. And that it began, this exponential growth began with the communist revolution. So it's uh, that there is just, it, the church in China will be the largest church in the world very soon. Uh, and it's a church that continues to be a persecuted church. Now, you, you know the saying, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I, I think that usually that's the case. Uh, and so in times of ease, uh, and that may be what's happening here, that that's when people lose their. All right, and then, uh, uh, did we, Jake, you want to do 36?
0: For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised.
1: And, we, you know, the theme of Hebrews is endurance. You need to endure the way that you will endure is through faith. What is the nature of faith? Faith is resurrection faith. What resurrection faith does for you, you face suffering and death in the midst of facing suffering and death. Uh, Because, or if you have faith, you can endure. You can see beyond the immediate circumstance. I I think that you can have hope, hope of the resurrection. So we've focused on that, I think, and it is a focus in the book. We're about to come up to chapter 11, in which he's going to give us examples of faith. And resurrection is going to play a key part in that. Uh, Dylan, you want to read, or we don't force you, but... Uh, 37? Yeah. Go ahead and read, uh, since since you're a junior, could you go ahead and read 37, 38?
0: For yet a very, very little while, and the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul is not well pleased with him.
1: I was actually reading on this when you guys came, and and the I I was not. I I think an explanation of this verse is that the righteous one will be the one who lives by faith. That's what he's already said. That my righteous one shall live by faith. Uh, I guess if he shrinks back, he's not the righteous one if we shrink back, we are not the righteousness. So this seems to not just simply be referring to Christ, but the, the body of Christ. And uh, uh, that our, you know, literally our actions in the face of persecution, you understand this becomes a problem in the early church because there are going to be those who become apostate. And this verse is going to cause trouble for them. Or this section in Hebrews. Church debates it. Jake can tell us the history of that debate and the things. Various churches uh, in the East and the West are going to handle this differently. They all, in some way, accept the apostate back. It wasn't, it was never like, oh, you're apostate, you can never. But different churches required different things. This is true. We saw the film Silence. Silence overemphasized it in Japan, but that was what they made people do, was to step on an image of Christ or an image of Mary and denounce their faith. But but what we didn't get in silence is actually tens of thousands of Christians died for their faith in Japan. Some did become apostates. Alright, and then uh, Maisie, you want to take the last verse? Mm -hmm.
0: But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul.
1: Does anybody have have a different translation here? You
0: have faith to the preserving of the soul? Is that the translation you're looking for?
1: say Say it again.
0: You have faith to the preserving of the soul?
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I didn't look at it carefully, but it doesn't seem to be, in other words, it seems to be the, the, the idea of, uh, it's not simply of the, the NRV, may, or in it, maybe a, a wrong translation here. But the point of it is that the writer has confidence. What I just said. You're not going to do that. You're not going to shrink back because you've already you've already shown you're not that uh, of that kind. I has greater things, or she has greater things. So. Uh, confidence. All right. Any qu- comments, questions on this hard section of Hebrews? Okay. Good. That's what I like.
0: <laughs> well, I, I have a comment.
1: <laughs> yes, what is your comment?
0: <laughs> now, I was just noticing, all, you know, if you go through and just make a list of all the, all the, um, well, better, I don't have a better term, but the verbs that are used of, you know, as Christians, um, in just these verses here, there's a lot of, you know, good solid things that, you know, you can just go through, like, spur one another toward love and good deeds, encourage one another, stand your ground, stand side by side with those who are so treated, sympathize, uh, joyfully accept whatever comes, you know, uh, have confidence, persevere, um, yeah, so just all those, you know, if you put all that together, it's sort of like a blueprint for
1: that's a wonderful comment that's such a good comment I wish I had made